turn to 2 Timothy, the, the beginning of 2 Timothy. We're starting a new, starting a new sermon series today. Uh, we're going to go through the book of 2 Timothy for the next eight weeks or so. That's the, the tentative plan at, at this time. And so I wanted to just take the, the, first, the first sermon, the first Sunday, to, to just look at the book of 2 Timothy uh, as, as a whole. So if you're using one of our pew Bibles, which you're probably not because they've all been taken away because of the coronavirus, but we're holding them in safe safe place, and as soon as it's safe to put them back, we will do that. If you happen to have, if you took one, which you're welcome to take one, uh, it's on page 934, the book of 2 Timothy. But uh, turn there. We went through the book of 1 Timothy last summer. So we, we just, uh, we've been going through the book of Luke for about four years now. We pressed, we pressed pause on that every once in a while to do something different. We went through 1 Timothy last summer, Paul's letter to Timothy, uh, to just um, explain to him how to and encourage him to uh, be a good pastor, be a, a godly, healthy pastor, leading a godly, healthy church, contend for the truth of the gospel, install godly leaders, uh, understand the offices of elder and deacon and member, take care of one another, guard against false teaching, all of these kind of things that, that pastors and elders are called to do. It was a letter from Timothy to his protege, his friend, his, uh, you know, Timothy was the mentor. This guy was the disciple, uh, church planter uh, na- named Timothy. And so that's what, that first Timothy is, is largely uh, ecclesiological in nature. It's a lot about the church. It's a lot about church order, church polity, how the church is to work. Second Timothy, as we'll discover in the coming weeks, is less ecclesiological, dealing with the whole church and how to be a pastor of the whole church, and more personal. Uh, it's, it's just a letter written from uh, a man at nearing the end of his life. He's in prison in Rome. He suspects that he's going to, you know, die uh, in Rome soon. And so this is his letter, uh, kind of just the, his, the, the thoughts and, and just kind of the emotions and what he's feeling in his heart that's most pressing and most important. He commun- puts that on paper and sends it to Timothy. So 1 Timothy, more ecclesiological, more general, more relevant, you know, for, for a lot of churches. Uh, 2 Timothy is more personal, more in particular. And so we, we derive application from 2 Timothy by, you know, picking up on principles of what this guy, what this guy, I, I had a friend who would, uh, when he would teach on, this wouldn't work now. It was a little, little on the nose, 2020. But um, the, he would teach on, in, back in like the 80s and 90s, when he would teach on 2 Timothy, he'd get up, he'd open his Bible to 2 Timothy, and he would invite the people that were listening to turn to 2 Timothy, and then he would have a plant, like he'd have a guy, like an undercover guy that would come in with a, in a ski mask and a gun, a fake gun. And he would come up to the front of the stage and he would, he would shoot a fake Everyone thought they were witnessing this guy getting killed by, like, a terrorist. And he'd, like, act like he was about to die, and then he'd go, tell my wife I love her. And then he would, like, fall over. And everyone is, like, emotionally scarred for life. And then he would, like, get up, and he'd be like, just kidding, that was all a joke. But you see the point, right? The point is that whatever you say right at the end of your life is the most, is what's really most important to you. So, again, that probably, I would not advise that for anyone you know, maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago, maybe it was different. I still don't think it was. I still think that was probably a bad idea in the 80s, but it's probably a really bad idea now in 2020. But the principle stands, which is that like these, these are the last words that we have from Paul before he died. We, we have access right now currently to nothing like closer to the end of Paul's life than what we see in Second Timothy. So it's him, uh, be, you know, writing to 
his best friend, his beloved son, uh, this, this, you know, protege, disciple for years that, that he handpicked. We're going to see, we're going to walk through uh, kind of some, some happenings in uh, Acts. We're going to, you know, look at Paul and Timothy in the church in Ephesus and things like that uh, today. But what we're going to see is that Paul and Timothy have a, a deep, real relationship that's been kind of cultivated and invested in for years. And uh, that's what's informing uh, how Paul speaks in, in the book of, of 2 Timothy. So we're just going to read two verses, uh, verses 1 and 2, and then we're just going to, yeah, like I said, let that serve to, uh, you know, mobilize us to just consider the book as a whole, just introductory, so that we can, you know, as we work through it verse by verse in the next two months, we'll know what we're, what we're looking at. So the verses are, uh, uh, verses 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask you to come and and meet us here this morning. We ask, Lord, we ask your blessing on your perfect and holy, and inspired, and inerrant, powerful word. Lord, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to hear from your word. We pray that you would help us to see your glory and to see your gospel in your word. We pray that you would speak to us, and we pray that you would sanctify us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so like I said, the, the, the main things that we want to do, in order to understand 2 Timothy, um, you, you, have to under, you have to know who Paul is, you have to understand who Paul is, uh, understand who Timothy is, uh, you have to understand the situation at the church in Ephesus where Timothy was, and it helps to, to have a, a, working a working knowledge of 1 Timothy. So those are kind of, that's kind of what we want to work through, th- those kind of four things this morning. Paul, Timothy, Ephesus, and then 1 Timothy. Those are kind of, we, we want to just get a brief overview of those. And, and these, these two verses can kind of, you know, uh, lead, lead us through them in a sense. I mean, the first verse, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. So if we would look at verse 1, and we think, we want to know who Paul is. We want to know, uh, you know, what is Paul's story? Who was he? Okay, he says he's an apostle by the will of God according to the life that's in Christ Jesus. But but how did he how did he get there? Who was Paul? We meet Paul in the book of Acts, specifically in Acts chapter uh, seven. So Paul is a, a faithful Jewish Pharisee. He's zealous for the word of God, zealous for the glory of God. He's from the, the tribe of Benjamin, which is kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the green beret, as it were, of, of like the tribe. It's like kind of one, the, one of the most faithful tribes. Uh, it was a tribe that you would be, you'd be proud to come from, the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, Paul says that he's blameless and flawless and, and righteous. And Paul hates Christians. So Acts 7, Paul is this zealous, faithful, righteous Jewish person who hates Christians, right? He, he saw Christianity as a, a heretical, uh, you know, a, a cult, a, a cult that had spun off of faithful uh, Judaism and had spun into heresy, right? He had, he, um, you know, uh, Paul thought that, you know, Christians, with all of their talk about grace and God's grace, and, uh, you know, that they were discouraging people from obeying the law, discouraging them from following the law, discouraging them from, from being righteous, right? Um, 
you know, if Christians say, listen, I'm saved by grace and, and not by what I do, not like the song we just sang, right? Not by my own merit, not by, you know, my own works, but rather I'm saved by God's grace. Then as Paul understood it, that is, uh, that is encouraging people to, to live lives of, of sin and just open, unrepentant sin. A lot of people kind of in Paul's camp, in kind of the Jewish community, had, would spread all these rumors about Christians in the early church because, uh, because it was just new. And so it was easy, right? So, so the early church, I mean, the, all, of, all of the early Christians would call each other brother and sister, and they would meet like we're doing right now for worship services, and, and non-Christians wouldn't go to these worship services, so they didn't really know what was going on in them. They just heard that, you know, all of these guys who call each other brother and sister are meeting together, and they would, you know, one of their great commands was to love one another. So there were rumors in the first century that, that all Christians were, you know, in, incestuous. They were like meeting together in these secret meetings and practicing in incest. Or uh, they would take communion, just like we do, like we're going to do today. So they would, you know, Jesus says, you know, whenever you eat this bread, you're eating my body. When you drink this cup, you're drinking my blood. And they, they, they weren't in the meeting, so they think Christians, uh, you know, have these weird, incestual, secret relationships with their brothers and sisters, and then they are cannibals. They eat, they eat and drink uh, hu- human flesh and, and blood. Those were th- and so that's what's informing how Paul thinks about Christians, right? He's hearing that from his, like, the, the person in the synagogue who's training him to be a Pharisee, and that's, that's kind of what's coloring him. And so he comes into the scene thinking, Christians are terrible. They're immoral. They're ungodly. They are sinful. They hate the law of God. They hate the glory of God, and they do this gross, perverse, disgusting stuff. So we meet Paul in Acts chapter seven, and he's holding the coats he's, uh, of everyone who's stoning one of the first Christian martyrs, uh, the deacon Stephen. They're stoning him to, they're murdering him publicly, stoning him to death. And Paul is there giving approval to them, holding their coats, encouraging them to do that. Please do that because you're actually helping our, our society. So Acts 7, Paul is encouraging uh, this, the, the martyr of Stephen. Acts chapter 8, he's now taking an active part in it. We see in Acts 8 that, that Paul is going from house to house, and he's interrogating people, finding Christians, arresting them, having them hauled off to, to prison. And then in Acts chapter 9, huge dramatic change of, of, of events, right? 90 degree, 180 degree. Paul is walking to Damascus, and he's hit by a bright light, and, and Jesus himself says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Right? And so Paul, because Jesus confronts him, and because Jesus effectively communicates to him that when you persecute my followers, you're persecuting me, and I'm God. That's, you're, not, you're, you're on the wrong side here. Like You need to align with me, the sovereign God of the universe, and you do that by aligning with my people, the, the, the church that I love and died for. And so Paul uh, kind of turns from Christian hunter and Christian killer to Christian evangelist and Christian missionary. By Acts 11, two chapters later, Paul begins preaching and teaching the Bible. He's traveling all over to proclaim the gospel and to plant churches. He's going to Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and, and Derby. So that's Paul's first missionary journey uh, in, in between you know, Acts 11 and, and 15. In Acts chapter 15, we have what's called the Jerusalem Council. 
which Paul is called back from the mission field. All of the leaders of the early church meet together for the Jerusalem Council to just, it's like the Constitutional Convention, but for like the Bible and for theology, right? Like all of the leaders of the day, we're going to gather, we're going to discuss these big issues, we're going to wrestle with them, we're going to hear evidence from people, we're going to think, we're going to figure out what is true and what is not with respect to the Bible and theology. And the biggest issues were uh, with respect to Gentiles becoming Christians. Can Gentiles become Christians? And if so, like, how, how does that work? How, how Jewish does a person have to be to become a Christian? Because Christianity was kind of born out of Judaism. Jesus was a Jewish person, and Christianity was born. So, so Christianity is starting to kind of grow uh, into the Gentile communities, but how is that going to work? Do Gentiles have to become circumcised? Uh, do they have to obey the law, dietary law, ritual law, Sabbath? Right? What, what laws do, do Gentiles have to obey when they become Christians? Uh, what laws no longer apply? There's all these issues. And so Paul is called as an expert witness. They're like, Paul, you are uh, a Pharisee. You are a, like the Jew of Jews. You are like incredibly Jewish, top of your class at the rabbinical school. You're the most Jewish guy that we know, and yet you've been doing ministry among the Gentiles. So you are uniquely cap- you know, equipped to speak into uh, this, this situation. Help us understand how Gentiles become Christians and what that, that looks like. And Paul tells all the people in the Jerusalem Council about his ministry to the Gentiles and how uh, people are repenting and believing the gospel and how, how Gentiles' lives are being changed. Um, and so, so the, the end result of the Jerusalem Council is that, yes, uh, Gentiles can become Christians. And no, Gentiles do not need to become Jewish in order to become Christians. Um, but like the, the asterisk or the qualifier is that G- Gentiles do have, like, th- they have to turn from their sin when they become Christians. So you don't have to become Jewish and embrace all of these Jewish customs and traditions and things like that, but you do have to like, stop worshiping idols, and you do have to uh, stop committing sexual immorality. And, and things that are, that are sinful, uh, Gentiles need to stop doing, but things that are Jewish... Uh, per, you know, kind of relate like like traditionally Jewish uh, that uh, Gentiles don't necessarily need to do in order to become Christians. So that's Acts fifteen. Uh, then after that, after Acts fifteen, uh, Paul sets out on his second missionary journey, where he basically goes with Barnabas, his traveling buddy, and they go to revisit all the churches that they had went and planted in the years uh, prior. So they want to go see how people are doing, encourage them in their faith, and things like things like that. There's a whole scuffle with uh, Paul and Barnabas. Um, uh, over another guy named Mark who deserts them or deserted them. And Barnabas is like, let's, let's have Mark come with us. And Paul's like, no, I don't want Mark to come with us because he deserted us before. He's probably going to do it again. They have, they have a, a, a rift or they kind of have a parting of, of ways. And it kind of makes uh, space for or makes room for uh, Timothy as, as kind of the, the, the next character in the story. So in Acts 16, immediately after uh, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, we meet Timothy. Acts 16, chapter 1 says that Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman. Uh, who, so, so his mom is a Jewish woman, but a Christian, a, a believer, a follower of Jesus who is Jewish. Uh, and Timothy's dad is a Greek. He's a Gentile. So he kind of grows, grows up in a mixed, uh, like a blended family. Um, we can pre- kind of presume that Timothy's uh, father was not a Christian um, or, or not necessarily interested in, uh, you know, following the law, or, or at least he wanted no part of, of like, the, Jewish, the Jewishness uh, of his wife because Timothy was not circumcised. 
Because that's another thing that, that we, we see mentioned in Acts 16 is that that's what they had to do. Like before they set out on their missionary journey where Paul's going to take Timothy with them and they're going to go visit all the churches again, the first thing Paul does is he has Timothy get circumcised as a grown-up, which is, which is un- unpleasant. Um, so, but, but it kind of raises this question, right? Paul, you were just at this uh, Jerusalem council where you argued that Gentiles don't need to be become Jewish, to become Christians. They don't need to be circumcised in order to become Christians. And now the first thing you do is take an uncircumcised co-missionary, fellow missionary, and you instruct him to get circumcised so that uh, for when you guys go. And it kind of, um, you know, uh, speaks to Paul's mindset. When Paul is kind of in the the realm of uh, theory, like theory and theology, and, and you know how does this, uh, how does the actual theology work itself out? He was very clear and very strong supporter of the idea that that people are saved by God's grace. We're not saved by our works. We're not saved by what we do. We're not saved by getting baptized. We're not saved by getting circumcised. We're saved by turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus. That's Paul's big thing. That's the hill that he dies on. But as soon as uh, it's time for uh, Paul to go do ministry in public, he recognizes that there's sometimes that you just, um, you kind of give up your rights for the sake of having a more effective ministry, for the sake of not scandalizing someone unnecessarily. So he basically goes to Timothy and says, we're about to go on a trip. We're going to be visiting a bunch of churches that I just planted. Um, there's going to be a lot of Jewish people in these churches. They all know that you're half Jewish. Your, your reputation is going to precede you. And they're going to be skeptical of everything that comes out of your, your mouth, right? If, if they are aware of the fact that you are not circumcised, they're like a one, like a single issue voter. They're just going to write off everything else that you are going to say because they're going to be stuck on that one particular issue. So just let's get out in front of it, like get circumcised, prevent any tension or skepticism that we otherwise might encounter. So Paul recruits Timothy and Timothy's circumcised and they go out on a missionary journey together. And pretty much from that point on, Timothy is Paul's right-hand man. He is his disciple. He is the guy that he's mentoring, protege, traveling companion. Uh, They go together on their second missionary journey, their third missionary journey. Um, like all, all the while when we see Paul and Timothy communicate, it's language of affection. It's, it's things like my beloved son or, you know, my son, my true child in the faith. Paul loves Timothy. Um, at several points we see in the New Testament, Paul uh, sends Timothy uh, kind of on his behalf as, as a proxy. Right? In, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, uh, Paul sends Timothy to the church in Thessalonica. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul sends Timothy to the church in Corinth. In Philippians 2, Paul sends Timothy to the church in Philippi. And ultimately, uh, Paul sends Timothy kind of on a long-term, permanent basis to the church in Ephesus. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So, Paul loves Timothy, he trusts Timothy, he ministers alongside Timothy. In fact, Timothy is the co-author. He gets, like, writing credits for several of Paul's letters. Uh, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon are all letters that were written both by Paul and by Timothy. You can kind of see just in the first couple of verses of any of those uh, letters that, that Timothy is getting a writing credit on those as well. So, uh, many of those letters are written by Paul in Rome, uh, you know, after his last missionary journey. And guess who's, like, the reason why Timothy is there co-writing those letters with him is because 
Like we're going to see when we work through 2 Timothy, everyone else has deserted him. Everyone else has deserted him, and everyone else has kind of left him high and dry, and Timothy is the one guy who's faithful and who is still there with him, uh, encouraging and, and remaining loyal to Paul. That's Paul, that's Paul, that's Timothy. Paul uh, is a, a Jewish person with just a, a remarkable conversion story that turns into this like powerful evangelist and missionary. Timothy is uh, kind of a, a half-Jewish, half-Gentile person from a mixed family that was kind of uh, looped in by Paul and kind of trained up and mentored to be uh, a fellow pastor, missionary, and church planter. So again, uh, Paul, Acts 7 through, let's say 15. Uh, Timothy, Acts 16 through 17. Well, if you look at Acts 18 and following, that's going to be the story of the church in Ephesus and how it was started. And it is pretty remarkable. And it's kind of a wild ride uh, as well. We're going to, you know, not, not uh, spend too much time on it, but it's worth just re-familiarizing uh, ourselves in case we've forgotten from when we went through Ephesians a few years ago or when we went through First Timothy uh, one year ago. Ephesus, uh, significant cultural epicenter, uh, you know, in, in the ancient world. It was on, on the coast. It was uh, a religious center. It was the home of the temple of Artemis, uh, which was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, right, alongside the Great Pyramid and some other, other things. So Artemis was a, a goddess of hunting and of nature and femininity and childbirth and fertility. She kind of all of these things were kind of her area of, of uh, you know, domain. They were the things that her worshipers would, they would be like offering tributes to her in order to have, their, to have those things, to, to, you know, see success in hunting and to see success and have, have children. And Artemis was thought to have lived in the temple in Ephesus. That was like her house. There was a big, huge statue called the Lady of Ephesus. And the Lady of Ephesus is uh, a, a, a kind of a weird, it's like a hyper-sexualized depiction of a, a goddess. And, and to, to worship at this statue uh, of the Lady of Ephesus was, would often involve temple prostitution and sexual sin and things like that. It was like the, 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 the reputation of the city of Ephesus was largely determined by the reputation of Artemis. And Artemis was just a, like, you know, the, the worship of Artemis and therefore the city of Ephesus was kind of obsessed with sex and, and was, you know, kind of seen as this super modern, urban, influential, progressive, profitable city that also happened to be obsessed with, uh, you know, sex. So Acts chapter 19, Paul rolls into Ephesus and starts to plant a church, starts to preach the gospel, and um, a revival starts. All of these people start turning from their sin and trusting in Jesus at the preaching of Paul uh, in the city of Ephesus, so much so that they even start a huge bonfire, and they start throwing all of their idols into the fire and throwing all of their books about idols and their books about dark magic and things like that into the fire. And it's this big, huge, uh, you know, yeah, revival slash, you know, just, just big thing that's happening in the streets. And there's a guy named Demetrius who gets really concerned because he, his job is to make idols. It's like his, so, so he's like, this is, Paul is bad for business because if, if, uh, nobody wants to worship idols. No one's going to buy idols. I'm not going to have any more income. So Artemis goes and kind of like stirs up some counter protesters, or I guess some pro- like some some anti revival protesters, and says Paul is bad news for the city of Artemis. Paul is bad news for the city of Ephesus. He's bad news for uh, the goddess Artemis. He's bad news for all of us and our way of life and what we experience. We need to run Paul out of town. And he starts to kind of stir up these these protesters, and a, a riot breaks out. 
There's like a huge riot, and the town council members kind of all come out, and they're like, stop. Like, we're all, this, like, we're going to get locked down. We're going to, you know, the, the, you know, they're going to, martial law is going to be imposed on us, and we're all going to get arrested if we don't stop. So let Paul do his thing, or, or, or just let him go away on his own volition, but don't have a big riot and a big, you know, huge protest. That is the, that's how the church in Ephesus got planted, is that story about a huge revival, bonfire, protest, you know, violence, and then having to kind of have it broken up before it becomes, uh, before it gets too out of hand. So that's the church that Paul sends Timothy to. Paul says, go to, go to that church in Ephesus and, and go be their pastor. You can see more about the church in Ephesus uh, by reading the book of Ephesians, right? A lot, a, a lot of uh, Ephesians is Paul writing to the entire church of Ephesus uh, uh, specifically about issues that, are, that they are experiencing. You can also see more about the church in Ephesus by turning to uh, the first couple chapters in Revelation because that church is one of the churches that is mentioned in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. So we have a lot of insight and a lot of perspectives and a lot of kind of data on the church of Ephesus and who they were and what they were. Uh, experiencing. So that's Paul, that's Timothy, that's the church in Ephesus that Timothy was the pastor of, and then it's, it's, also, it's also worth just familiarizing ourselves with the book of 1 Timothy, because that informs how we understand the book of 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy, um, again, right, largely ecclesiological in nature. It's Paul writing to Timothy about how the church should operate, how the church should be ordered, how the church should function, Chapter 1, warnings against false teaching, exhortation to, to contend uh, for the truth of the gospel, that Jesus came to save sinners. First Timothy chapter 2 uh, is a lot, a lot about prayer, right? Pray for your leaders. Pray for your neighbors. Here's who you should pray for. Here's how you should pray uh, together as a church. First Timothy chapter 3 uh, is all about church leadership, elders, right? Qualified godly men who can teach and lead, deacons, qualified godly people who serve and meet needs, the qualifications for those respective offices. First Timothy chapter 4, uh, instructions on perseverance, right? Uh, you know, Timothy and, and the church in Ephesus, you should expect that people are going to leave and they're going to punt the faith and they're going to walk away. But even if they do, I want you, Timothy, and I want you, members of the church in Ephesus, I want you to stay. I want you to discipline yourself and I want you to persevere for the long haul. First Timothy 5 is just uh, instructions on the life of the church, right? Serving one another, relating to one another, taking care of one another, widows, family members, people who are particularly vulnerable, things like that. First Timothy chapter 6, more about false teaching, false doctrine, people who love money and promote sin. Uh, don't be like them. Instead, be righteous and be godly and fight the good fight and guard the gospel that was entrusted to you. That's a lot of what we see in First Timothy and immediately, you know, you flip, flip the page in your, your Bible and you'll get to 2 Timothy, which has some similar themes. You can tell it was written by the same guy to the same guy, but again, it's just more personal uh, in, in nature, right? For, 1 Timothy reads more like, um, like a, a letter that a dad would write to his son when he goes off to college, or when he starts his career, right? Like, you know, here are some really important life lessons that I want you to like, study hard, show up on time, you know, don't talk back to your boss, right? Like, practical advice are that you need to succeed in, in life. Second Timothy reads more like a letter that a dad would write to his son when he's on his deathbed. 
where he's like pouring out his heart and saying, you know, this might be the last chance that I ever get to say anything to you. I love you. I'm proud of you. I care about you. I'm not going to be around much longer, so I want you to pick up the baton that I drop, that I leave for you, and kind of carry on the work that I have started. So 2 Timothy, very emotional from the, from the heart. Uh, in, in chapter 1, we'll see starting next week, Paul affirms Timothy's faith. He recognizes that Timothy is a Christian, and he's grateful that Timothy's a Christian. And Timothy's a Christian largely because of the ministry of his mother and from her mother. So Timothy, like, Timothy is uh, the result of family evangelism and, and parental discipleship, and Paul's grateful for it. Like, for 2 Timothy chapter 1 is, is just uh, like, I am grateful that you're a Christian. I'm grateful that I'm a Christian. I'm grateful that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And I'm grateful that, that God has decided to entrust us with this priceless treasure that is the gospel of grace. It's, it's you know, Paul uh, exhibiting, you know, communicating gratitude and gratefulness uh, for the gospel of Christ. 2 Timothy 2 says, okay, because, because we've received this gift of grace and because we're, we're grateful for the grace that we have, now we have a responsibility to, to work hard and to be faithful and to, to be godly Christians. The, the Christian life, you enter it by grace, you persevere in it by grace, but it's hard work. He likens it to being a, an athlete who has to train and, you know, two days and you're doing push-ups till you vomit and, and a soldier who has to, you know, run obstacle courses in the mud while they're shooting live rounds over your head and, and uh, a farmer who has to get up before, you know, before dawn and work all day long, 20-hour days for the entire planting and harvesting season in the hopes of, of having a return on your investment. The, the, the Christian life is hard work. It was never meant to be easy. It's meant to be hard, so lean in and be faithful. Chapter 1, we're grateful for the grace that we have. God has saved us by his unmerited favor. Chapter 2, the Christian life is hard work. We need to work hard at it and be faithful at it. Chapter 3, there's going to be opposition to our, our work as, as Christians. People will oppose the gospel. They'll oppose the, the, the God that we worship and serve. They'll love sin more than they love God. They're going to try to undermine your ministry. So be aware of them and be on guard against them. And here, Timothy, is how you guard against the opposition and the false doctrine doctrine that is there, it's by rooting yourself in the Word of God, by, by you know, digging down deep into the, you know, the all scriptures God-breathed and profitable for reproof and correction and teaching, right? That root yourself in the Word of God that is uh, able to make you wise for salvation because that's how you stand firm and guard against the opposition that is coming at you. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3. And then lastly, 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, preach the word. Proclaim the gospel faithfully. Preach it when it's popular. Preach it when it's unpopular. Study your Bible. Know your Bible. Teach your Bible. Disciple people. Help them grow in your faith like I did when I was there. Timothy, I, I am done now. I've run the race. I've finished, I've finished the race. I kept the, the faith. And, and now I want you to run the race. And I want you to keep the faith after I am gone. He has a few personal, you know, conclusions and say hi to this guy and be careful, watch out for that guy and say hi to this guy and this guy over here says hi to you. Some things like that is how he wraps up his, his letter. But that's it, right? Second Timothy 1, thanks be to God for the privilege of believing the gospel. Chapter 2, the hard work of the Christian life. Chapter 3, guarding against opposition by being rooted in the word of God. And then chapter 4, preach the gospel and finish the race. That's, uh, that's the book of 
2 Timothy. That's where we're headed in the, the weeks uh, that we're coming together. We're going to consider this book and we're going to consider how we together as a family can commit ourselves to the gospel afresh, how we can uh, resolve as a family to hold fast to the gospel and to run the race to completion together as a family. That's what we're going to be doing the next two months and that's also what we do every month when we celebrate communion. As we come together as a family, we resolve to believe the gospel and to persevere in the gospel. We remember the gospel. We love the gospel. We remember who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We remember his body that was broken on the cross, his blood that was shed on the cross. We trust in his death and his resurrection to atone for our sin and to secure the salvation that we could never earn on our own. 1 Corinthians 11, we read, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. We have communion elements up here on the front table. It's a little like individually packaged. It's got a little wafer in it and then a little juice on, underneath of it. So it's like, you know, clean and, and safe. Um, if you're a Christian, we invite you to, to join us in communion. Just as soon as uh, Jason starts the song of response, uh, kind of make your way up, social distance, grab a thing, go back to your seat, take a minute, spend some time in prayer, right? Confess your sin to God. Uh, remember the sufficiency of Christ's death to, to atone for your sin, celebrate together, eat, drink. It's like a little family meal that we enjoy together where we, where we confess our sins to Jesus, we trust in Jesus together, and then we celebrate the privilege that it is to be uh, Christians. If you're not a Christian, we would ask you not to take communion because the Bible teaches against it. It actually, actually says that if a non-Christian takes communion, he is eating or drinking judgment on himself. So if you're not a Christian, don't take communion. Instead, uh, trust in Christ, right? Turn from your sin, trust in Jesus, confess your sin to him, repent of it, and trust in him. Trust that his death is sufficient to pay the penalty for your sin. Trust that his resurrection can give you new life. And trust in Jesus instead of yourself so that you can take communion with us. The, the very next time that we, that we do it. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going we're to sing, and we're going to uh, observe communion together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the good news. We thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel of Christ. We thank you that we have been saved from our sin. We've been saved from death. We've been saved from your wrath. We've been saved from hell. We've been saved by Jesus, our King and our Savior. Lord Jesus, we pray that we could be faithful to our calling as Christians. We pray that we could work hard at repentance and faith. We pray that we could protect the truth of the gospel, that we could trust in uh, your word. We pray that we could root ourselves deeply in your word. We pray that we could proclaim the gospel boldly to the world around us, to our family and friends and, and neighbors. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.